So this evening, I would like to look at ethics, Buddhist ethics, and look at it in a different way. Uh, look at it from uh, quotes, from uh, text, and then I'll finish with some uh, various comments about it. First, to, <coughs> to look at the text and to see that for, for the Buddha, again and again, he will talk about ethics. He will talk about ethics for the monks and the nuns, but also ethics for the lay people. So I'll just read the three quotes about that, which are relatively evident. So this is the uh, first thing he said. For I do teach that no man or woman ought to do wrong bodily or verbal or mental acts and the many sort of evil, unprofitable things. So in a way, what is interesting with the Buddha is that generally when he looks at ethics, he will look at the body, at the speech, and at the thought. So he's kind of always trying to look at the whole person, at the action of the person. And then he also look kind of when he, I mean, the translation evil, what is interesting, he said unprofitable things. And generally his standpoint is to look, is it wholesome or not? Is it beneficial or not? Is it harmless or not? Is it causing suffering or not? So generally that's the way he look at it. When a lay person possesses five things, he or she lives with confidence in his or her house. What are the five? He or she abstains from killing things, breathing things, from taking what is not given, from misconduct in sensual desire, from speaking falsehood, and from indulging in liquor, wine, and fermented brew. So again, he says what he points out. When one has these five things, one can live confidently in one's house. So again, he's not saying there is a sacred rules, but he's saying, look, if you want to live happily in your house, if you want to live peacefully in your house, then it's a good idea not to kill, not to steal, not to have misconduct in sensual desire, not lying, and not drinking, not indulging in alcohol. So it's kind of looking at what is it going to help you or not. Again, it's not sacred rule, and if you don't follow the sacred rule, you're a bad person. It's more looking at what are the conditions, what is going to help you, what is not going to help you. Then there are five trades that a lay person should not ply. What five? There are trading in weapons, breathing things, meat, liquor, and poison. So again, if the idea is harmlessness, then in terms of right livelihood, what you encourage not to do is to sell weapons, to sell people or animals, to um, be a butcher, or to sell alcohol or poison. So again, it's kind of is looking at the arm, that if you engage in this, not only you, you're going to cause harm, you're going to have harm caused to other people. 
through the beginning of your action, even if you do not do it yourself. Then this, I, I have referred to it several times. This is a Sigalovada Sutta, which is also the Sigalavaka Sutta. It has different translation. And basically, it's a discourse to Sigala, and it's considered as a lay person code of discipline. I am not going to read it out all, but just to kind of look at a few points which I found interesting in it. And so basically the Buddha meets this young man and he gives him some advice about how to live in his life. And what is interesting at the beginning is he said that in a way if uh, what is what is it that makes one commit negative act? And the Buddha said desire, anger, ignorance and fear. That's an interesting one. And so he says, if the noble disciple is not led by desire, anger, ignorance, and fear, he will not commit negative action. So again, he's looking at what is it that is going to make us commit negative action, which for him would mean that we cause suffering to ourselves and others. And to me, that is interesting to look at in terms of the awareness, in terms of what I was talking about yesterday of condition. That in a way to see what is it. You know, sometimes I, 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 I am kind and generous. Sometimes I could be mean or deceitful. And what is behind it? What is behind it? What is the, 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 the root of it? And one of it might be fear. So to kind of look at fear, how do we want to work with fear? Then he kind of, you know, talks about many different things. But one thing the Buddha is very concerned about, and you might not be, but he is. He's concerned about the, 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 the channels for dissipating wealth. He's very concerned about lay people keeping their wealth, making it work. So he's not like kind of, you know, like we think he's on his little cloud, not caring about material things. But he's rather concerned that, you know, if you have a lay person, you take good care of your wealth and you don't dissipate it. So a lot of it is about that. And one of the main ones he feels to dissipating wealth is the six evil consequences in being addicted to idleness to laziness. And the Buddha says, he does no work saying it's extremely cold. It's extremely hot. It's too late in the evening. It's too early in the morning. He's very hungry. He's too full. I mean, you might have heard this before, possibly from teenagers <laughs> or possibly from us. He's not saying laziness per se is bad. But he says, living in this way, he leaves many duties undone. New wealth he does not get, and wealth he has acquired dwindles away. So this is his concern with laziness. It's not that it's sinful per se, but that if you're really lazy, 
then you're not going to really kind of, you know, have enough wealth to take care of yourself or your family. Then I thought I would... uh, That's what he says about wealth. So for for him, the wise and virtuous shine like a blazing fire. He who acquires his wealth in harmless ways. So it's not any wealth. (laughs) So again, he looks at, you know, if you acquire your wealth in harmless way, you are like a bee that gathers honey. And then what are you supposed to do with your money? That's what he said. Again, with wealth acquired harmlessly. Again, very important. A lemon divides his health, his wealth in four ways. One portion he uses for his wants. Two portions he spends on his business and the fourth he keeps for times of need. I mean, again, very practical. The Buddha is, you know, good... Uh, Advice, which could be useful in this time of economic crisis, where I think nobody kept money for the time of needs. Now, this is about the wife. And, you know, in five ways, should a wife minister to her husband? Being, I don't know, the husband ministered to the wife. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So that's the five ways the, yeah, the wife is ministered by the husband. He's being courteous to her. He do not despise her. He's faithful to her. He hands authority to her. That's an interesting word. And he provides her with adornment. <laughs> then you have the five ways of the, how the wife shows her compassion to her husband. She performs her duty well. She is hospitable to relation and attendance. She is faithful. She protects what he brings. She is skilled and industrious in discharging her duty. So, not bad. Not bad. Now, the servant and employee. So then, how should a master minister to his servants and employees by assigning them work according to their ability, by supplying them with food and with wages, by tending them in sickness, by sharing with them any delicacies, and by granting them leaves at times. I think it's fairly enlightened for 2,500 years ago. Not sure that many people did it, but that's what they were encouraged to do. So that's the Sigalavaka. If you're interested, I will just put it in the board, and then you can have a little look at it. Then, so what you can see with this one, with the Sigalavaka, what we have here is more basically how to run one's house, how to run one's family, how to make friends in a harmless way. So it's very important to see that the ethics is based on harmlessness, but it, it's contained within the personal, within the family, within the friend. So it's kind of not so much something as societal, like somebody was asking about how to live in the world, how to contribute to society. So this was 2,500 years ago. This text is much later. 
This is about a thousand years later. It's about the 480. And this is produced in China after all the texts have been translated into Chinese. And then there is all this text about precepts, about ethics, and then they create their own precepts. And by that time, the Mahayana has arisen and this very strong idea of compassion. And so in this text, which is called the Brahmajana Sutta, which I have translated because in Korea you recite it very regularly, then here you have an ethics which start to be what I would call more societal. And it's about what you do yourself, but it's also about your relationship to society. And so I'll just look at a few. So it's a 10 major and the 48 secondary. I'm not going to do them too exhaustively. But what is interesting is the shape the, the precept takes. You have a title and then you have an explanation. For example, we've refrained from taking life. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from taking life either by performing the act of killing himself by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, by praising death, by encouraging someone else to do it by the use of spell or mantra. And then he says, one must never intentionally kill a living creature by creating the causes and conditions for death by developing a means of taking life or by engaging in the actual deed of killing. This is interesting because it really is not just saying do not kill. It's kind of in a way looking at all the conditions in which killing might happen, direct and indirect. And to me, this is a little about, in a way, harmlessness or harmfulness. So, in a way, we don't go around killing people and generally we don't in general create the condition for it to happen. But it's interesting in terms of harm. We might not harm someone by ourselves but we can do it in a roundabout way. I think gossip is a relatively effective way to do this in a roundabout way if we want to do that. And so in a way to look, it's come to me what is interesting in this precept is that it's not like, again, rule and regulation, commandment, which are sacred, but it's about reflection. How do I live? How do I act? What is the intention? Then people, some people seem to be interested in uh, sex. So we'll have the one about refrain from improper sexual behavior. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from sexual misconduct either by committing the improper act himself, by causing someone else to do it, etc., etc. So you can look at all of that things. But what he's really concerned about, he must never perform perverted or indecent sexual act. And then he tells all the people someone should not do it with, basically the close family, the somebody else who is married to someone else, and etc., etc. So it's not the Buddha is not saying sex is bad per se, not at all, it's something that is normal and human. But what he's concerned with is that it causes suffering. And this is why he says it is a duty of a bodhisattva 
always to present a state of mind which confirms to the Buddha nature and to lead others to liberation by teaching them the pure Dharma. If on the contrary a Bodhisattva were to entertain lustful thought indiscriminately with regard to living creature, then this would cause compassion to disappear and would be a transgression. So again, the connection is not with kind of some ultimate value, but more through the compassion, to kind of looking in our sexual relationship. Are we abusing somebody? Are we forcing somebody? How, what do we bring to it? How do we do it, etc., etc. I mean, when Stephen was uh, for 10 years, Stephen was a Buddhist chaplain in the prison here. On the other side, in Denbury, you have a prison. And Stephen was a Buddhist chaplain there. And his most difficult thing, used, when he came back, I used to say, how is it? And sometimes he looked a little, really kind of a little heavy, you know. And, he, and his most difficult was when he, he went and saw the pedophile, were generally in a kind of separate place. And when he met one or two of them, who every time explained to him how, you know, uh, they were not at all repentant, and they thought, you know, it was a good idea to do what they did, and they wanted to do it again. And so they used to go on a lot about the country where the age of consent was really low, and so they could uh, go and do it very legally. And he found it so, I mean, it was quite unpleasant to kind of, you know, see people who kind of did not see the harm they would cause by their action in that way. So in a way, that's what, in a way, then he continued, you know, you have the usual refrain from telling lies. What is interesting in this one is the most important transgression is to refrain from selling alcohol. And it's a minor transgression for oneself to drink alcohol because the Buddha thinks there is more uh, harm in selling it and then many people then become drunk. And so the thing for the Buddha against alcohol was not again in the drink itself, but that when you drank, then you would lose your wisdom and often you would do things could be harmless to yourself or to others. Then I wanted to find a few which were more societal. Care well for those who are sick. Upon seeing someone who is afflicted with a disease, a disciple of the Buddha must care and provide for him as if he would for the Buddha himself. First among the eight fields of blessing is that of nursing the sick. So again, it's kind of it's saying, you know, if somebody is sick, they are in pain, and then in a way it's your duty out of compassion to help them. Then do not keep and have ready for use any implements for killing. So this is again back to the theme of harmlessness. Refrain from doing business with an evil intent. And there he said again, you must not sell citizens, slave, animal, coffin, uh, so things where, which kind of involve, kind of with the coffin, the problem being an undertaker is that you hope for people to die. So it's kind of <laughs> not a good wish. Another one, do not light destructive fires. So for this reason, in Buddhist country, 
uh, in the monastery, when you light fires, you only light them in the winter, uh, when you're fairly sure you're not going to kill any insect because either they're already dead or they have hibernated. One interesting one, do not beg for and try to obtain things by relying upon the authority. This is basically corruption. They're saying, you know, do, because you know somebody high up, do not use them to get advantage of somebody else. So think about it. Save the lives of living creatures and set loose those who are about to be killed. So here really kind of it's getting a little wider. Out of his compassion, a disciple of the Buddha must set free living creature. And what happened with that one in China is that then it became um, a tradition that people would go in the marketplace and would release live animals. To this day, they do it. The problem with this is that they release live animals and the people in the market catch them again and sell them again. And then you have another kind of enterprise. This one is interesting. Refrain from anger, do not strike others, and do not take revenge. A disciple of the Buddha must not repay anger with anger or blows with blows. And one should not, in it, it said, you know, you should not uh, beat and scold your servant. So in a way, he's kind of looking, again, he's looking at, you know, who could you be angry with, and then say, you know, if the anger makes you harm somebody, that is not a good idea. So no, it's not the anger per se, it's what it will make you do. I think there was another word. Again, do not hold an unwholesome occupation. Ah, pay ransom and rescue people from their difficulty. So, you know, if anybody is uh, in difficulty, you kind of, you know, try to help them out again. Do not cause harm to sentient beings. So, again and again, I mean, they are, it's 48. I'm not going to go all over them. But it's to show that in a way, you have maybe the precept as an ethics at the beginning of the time of the Buddha, which is a little more personal. Then with the Chinese precept, you get some precept to become a little more societal, looking at you know, our influence on the society. And what is interesting in terms of the Buddhist Chinese precept is that actually they had a, Buddhism had a great influence in terms of compassion uh, on Chinese society. And around that time, slowly evolved this kind of like social Buddhist action of that time, trying to create place granary for time of need, repairing roads, things for the sick, etc., etc. And then there was different politic times which then the thing were not possible. And even legally, the fact that this idea of everybody being equal in compassion had a kind of influence on the legal system at that time. But to me, what is interesting with this precept is that, in a way, they evolve. The one you find in this book are not the same one as the Buddha, in a way, instituted them. And then if you look at the ethics in Tibetan Buddhism, it's a little different. 
And to me, the question is, what would be the ethics for nowadays? One interesting example is Tignatin, who created precept for the, his order of interbeing for the lay people. And again, they're quite interesting because, again, he kind of adapts them to our time. And to me, this is what would be interesting, not so much to take the precept of the past, but to look within ourselves or to discuss among others what would be the precept now? What, what would I be ready to take? I mean, this is a question. What would I be ready to take, in a way? What would I be ready to follow? But even more, what would I intend? Would I, what would I be inspired by? Because what is interesting with the Bodhisattva precept is that in Korea, the monks and the nuns take them once a month because it's understood that you will generally fail. You endeavor to uphold the precept. You endeavor to be compassionate, but very likely you will fail. And so you have to recite them again to remind you, ah, that's my intention. That's what I want to do. And the lay people in Korea take them once a year. Once a year you have a huge ceremony, and everybody takes the precept again. There is big... Uh, Dharma talk about the precept as a means to remind oneself. So again, this ethic is not about perfection, but it's about intention. Because for me, ethics is about relationship. Meditation is about working with ourselves, but ethics is about our relationship. In a way, bringing awareness and compassion to relationship, near relationship, far, ahead, far away relationship. And so, in a way, to see that these precepts are really, again, based on condition, based on the principle of cause and effect, and based on compassion. But then what is also interesting to look at the precept is that often the way they're expressed is in terms of restraint. As it's phrased, do not do this, do not kill, do not steal, do not do this, do not do that. So often we have this... Uh, way of looking at the precept in terms of renunciation. I must stop doing something. But if we look at other part of the text, actually you have the other aspect of the precept, which for me, ethics, is about cultivating. So we're not in, in this kind of restricting mode. <gasps> I'm afraid to do this, or I'm afraid to do that. But that actually there is the other side which is to cultivate, in a way, the opposition of what we're told not to do. So do not kill. The opposite of that is a cultivation of harmlessness, reflection on how do I cause harm to myself and others? How can I cultivate harmlessness? Do not steal. The other side of that is generosity, dana. How can I be generous to myself and to others? How can I cultivate generosity? In terms of no misconduct in sexual acts, how can I respect others? How can I love others? And I'll talk more about this tomorrow. In terms of the do not lie, the other side of that is how can I cultivate honesty? How can I cultivate right speech. What is right speech? And to me, this is something very interesting to bring the meditative awareness to right speech. And the, the fifth one is 
do not take intoxicant, which again, the idea is not to cloud the mind in such a way that we're going to hurt ourselves and others. Then the thing is, how can I cultivate clarity? How can I be more clear, more wise, so that I see before I start that if I go down this way, this is going to cause myself harm and others harm as well. And so cultivating clarity. So then, in a way, more naturally, we will not cause harm. And so I think what is interesting in terms of the training, the three training, to see very much the ethics not as separate from the meditation or from the wisdom. But the ethics, in a way, the, my teacher, Master Kuzan, really saw them as going together, that we had to cultivate them together, that in a way cultivating ethics meant that we could do meditation better, wisdom better, that making ethics more easy as well. And so to see very much the three as kind of working together, one helping the other. And so kind of in a way, instead of thinking of ethics so much as rule and regulation, to kind of really look at how am I in the world? For me, it's basically about relationship, about relationship and compassion, wisdom and compassion. How can I, in my relationship with others, in the way I work, in the way I am in the world, in the way I use resources, how can I bring wisdom and compassion to that? How can I cultivate meditation so then I can develop more wisdom and compassion I can then use in my ethical life? How can I really look at the three characteristics, develop experiential wisdom, so then I'm clearer about what maybe an ethical action is? So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes? Yeah, because you see the way the eightfold path is uh, divided is that actually uh, I mean I always forget one but uh, you have right thought then you have right right thought right intention uh, and then maybe one more which I forget which that is more like wisdom then you have right speech right action right livelihood and then generally this is seen as ethics. And then after that you have right effort, which then can go in different ones, but generally you have right efforts, right concentration, which go into the meditation. I think that's about it. I might have forget I can generally forget one somewhere. Yes. No, you see, he talked to, to both. No, no, it, it was very clear. You see, because, I mean, what is interesting in the Sigalaka, in terms, again, you have to see, he's, he's saying do not drink alcohol in terms of what the effect it is going to have on your mind. So I'll, decree, I'll, de I'll describe the, the... Ah, ah, this is a good one. Voila. These are young hours older, these six evil consequences in indulging in intoxicants 
which cause infatuation and heedlessness. First, loss of wealth. Second, increase of quarrels. Third, susceptibility to disease. Fourth, earning a bad reputation. Fifth, fifth is very interesting. Shameless exposure of the body. <laughs> they already did that 2,500 years ago. <laughs> and weakening of the intellect. So basically, if you take alcohol and this doesn't happen, it's okay. <laughs> you see, I think it's very important to see the Buddha is not saying alcohol per se is bad. But he's saying if when you take alcohol or intoxicants, you do these six things, then it might not be a good idea. Basically, I mean, that's generally, again, what he looks at is the consequences of it. That's what he looks at. Yes? Okay, traditionally, there will not be any target. Traditionally, there is no reference point. And that's why you just ask, what is this? And you don't refer it to anything. But I find that people who do awareness practice, where they're used to observe their thought, feeling, and sensation, then when they use it in that way, what is this? Directed to a thought, feeling, sensation, or something else, it's actually make them look at it in a different way. So I think this is like more a modern kind of application of the technique, but that's okay too. But traditionally, no. There would be no reference point. Yes? Yeah, no, no, I mean, I think in a way, the, uh, I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh has developed the precept over time, they have changed. He has, he, he has added clauses as it goes. He kind of, you know, like when I, I read them uh, in 85, you know, there is a f version first, and then he kind of generally has kind of amplified, look at, you know, what caused harm. I think for Thich Nhat Hanh, the main point is what caused harm. And then he look at all the different things in the, when you meet people who cause harm. So yes, they are much more detailed. And then, then after that is for the people to see, you know, how much, 
which clauses they can apply because it's yeah quite, the standard is quite high. But personally, I think again is do you see this as like you know sacred? I must do every single thing, or is it more an intention to be careful and to see what is it that influences me? What is it that causes harm in my relationship, in my life, or in terms of taking uh, various things or looking at various things? Yes? Um, how, how can one sober up from the intoxication of daydreaming? <laughs> ah, that, that's, that, that's a difficult one. That, but that's interesting. This is an interesting one to see that. Daydreaming, in a way, the function is imagination. So imagination, per se, again, is not a bad thing. It's just a function of the mind. But the thing with daydreaming, I mean, how does it work? I mean, I used to be very bad at it, so I'm quite a professional. But it's, you know, over time, what is interesting with daydreaming is to go back, to kind of, you know, to see you lost in this thing, and then to go back, to go back to the beginning. And at the beginning, what you experience is this seduction. You're sitting in meditation, watching the breath or doing whatever, and then it's, if I had, if I was, and it's like a very good, seductive, mm, it's kind of like, ooh, I want that, you know? And why? This is very interesting. Why are daydreaming so agreeable? Because it's a mono-reality. And in it, Everything goes according to plan. Because we do everything. It's like a film when we do everything. From, you know, producer, screenwriter, actor, director. We even sell the peanuts. You know, so, and then we tinker. We improve it. So, I mean, this is one of the best ways to meditate. Because the time passes so fast. You're not aware that you have pain or anything. But the problem with that, in a way, is first we're not really meditating. But it's, the danger is more in daily life. Because in daily life, if we do this a lot, actually it leads to frustration. Imagine yourself sitting at home, dreaming of the wonderful husband or wife and delightful children, quiet and respectful. And, and then the husband come back and he's grouchy and the children come back and they're kind of all over the place. And, da, 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 da. and then you think, why are they not like in the dream? That's a problem with the daydreaming because of the comparison. So in a way, also to see there is a difference between hope you hope something, and in order to imagine that something, you have to think a little about it. But there is a difference when you go into this story which really takes you away from, you know, daily life. With myself, I used to spend hours as a Buddhist nun daydreaming about doing kung fu, becoming a kung fu mistress, and then all kind of things beautiful would happen, etc., etc. Finally, one day, I decided I have to try this out. So I go to a kung fu class, and I lasted an hour and a half. I did not like the exercise. I did not like to be told what to do. And I did not like to be repeating the same thing. And then I thought, yes, doesn't make sense to daydream about this. <laughs> but I could see, you know, it's kind of like a kind of a distraction. It's an occupying. So... How can we, you know, we keep it in what I would call the hopeful 
healthy mechanism of imagining something, some future, and at the same time not to go into this, this kind of dreamlike state which then we compare ourselves now. And when we come down from it, often we get into the multiple reality which does not go according to plan. So it's kind of, I still think we need to use imagination, we need use to, to imagine certain hopes and things, but to be careful, when does it go into this really kind of, you know, problematic mono-reality? So it's kind of, kind of learning to sit. I know for myself, my breakthrough, it took some time, it took some time, but my breakthrough finally one day, sitting in meditation, and just deciding this was it. I was not going to do it anymore. But the way I did it was not to say, I stop now, no. What I did during that meditation was to see it, to be aware of it. So I was doing the meditation and I could see the, the gooiness. No. Back to the breath. Hmm? <laughs> Back to the question. And for the whole 45 minutes, that's just what happened. Back and forth. But I would not go into it. I would feel it, but I would not go into it. I would feel it, not go into it. And after that, it was gone. And I have never done it ever again because I can't just make it up. It doesn't, I just, no, there is no power anymore. It's gone. So I think, you know, if it's a strong habit, it takes time. I think the main thing is to see the beginning, to see the beginning. At the same time, in certain situations, I think it can be useful to daydream. I think, one, again, it's not bad per se. Like when I was in South Africa where we visited prisoners, and, uh, you know, some of them were in for quite some time. And we, they were doing meditation with friends of ours who teach meditation in that jail. So we are talking about thought. We are talking about daydream. And I was talking about a young man who said, yes, I am aware that I need to daydream a bit so that I kind of, you know, I have hope outside of this cell. But if I do it too much, then I become so dissatisfied. Then it becomes very painful. So he needed enough to make him hopeful, but not too much to make him kind of, you know, depressed in a way, to be there. So they kind of like, kind of finding also, kind of see when it is useful and when really it is not helpful. Yes? Uh, if pessimistic daydreaming be a healthy thing, like sort of imagining things that go wrong, well, you see, sometimes I think we are a little, um, what I call magical thinking. Magical thinking. And so magical thinking often says, well, if I think about bad things, they won't happen. This is fine if you don't have any, what I would call, low mood uh, difficulty within yourself. Because if you have low mood, then generally you have a little kind of depressed thinking. And then if you think too many bad things, then that actually is going to feed that. So I think uh, this kind of possibly of pes pessimistic daydreaming might be better for an optimist person <laughs> than for a pessimistic person. I think the pessimistic person would need a little more optimistic daydream <laughs> to kind of balance it out. Yes? 
mean, these days, anything we do, <laughs> but even, I mean, like we said before, as Gandhi said, you know, even to be alive, for our organism to survive, we will cause harm. This is unavoidable. Even if you are a vegan, you know, just kind of growing the vegetable, the worm will die. The, when you turn the, 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 the when you turn the, the the earth and the bird gets the worm and everything. So whatever we do, we will cause harm. And so to me, that's why I love the idea of Gandhi is to try in our life to cause the least harm within our circumstances. And so then I think it's for each of us to see. I mean, if your work entails traveling, you know, like if you are a visiting nurse, you need to use a car. At the same time, if you have a shop which is five minutes away, you might not need your car to go to that shop unless you want to buy something very heavy. Then you'll need the car. So I think it's again to see uh, what is reasonable? Back to what is it I need? What is it I want? What is it kind of more like a surplus? And so to me, this is kind of a little about thinking, how can I simplify my life, but without, not, without getting into what Stephen was talking about, which is the extreme of moving from indulgence to self-mortification. So to make it so, to have such a kind of, you know, uh, simplified life that you might be okay but your children might really have a hard time possibly I don't know you know I think it's kind of to see uh, is it just myself like if I read my friend Pascal and his book but I mean I've never seen such simplified life he's amazing this fellow I mean really he kind of anybody compared to him is really over the top you know too much using too much resources is really Every time he simplifies, he lives very simply. I mean, he sleeps on the ground, you know, even with roots. I mean, I could not even think of doing that. <laughs> so in a way, he is, I mean, one could say he could be the standard. You know, my friend Pascal could be the standard of what a simplified life should be. But then I don't think many of us could do it for many different reasons, because I don't think we could sleep outside or many things he's able to endure. I don't think I could endure. I think I would end up in the hospital if I did what he did. So again, it's back to the limitation. What is my limitation? How, how, can, I, you know, how can I work with those limitations? And I think each of us, in terms of ethics, I think the, the Buddhist ethic, I think, is a situational ethics. So each time, in a way, we make a decision in a way, it's an ethical choice. And then often we don't know what is going to be the result. And so we can, I think it's really to try our best within our circumstances. I'm not a good example. We're taking plane all the time, you know. But if I don't take a plane, you know, I will not go many places. So it's good. So I'm trying to do more Skyping. Then I hope later I'll do less traveling. <laughs> Okay, I think I have to stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.